Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Chumbawamba. Remember Chumbawamba? Yeah. Chumbawamba. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Sweetie Pants. Poorly constructed and overpriced, perfect for the comfort of your home. Order Sweetie Pants online now. Welcome everybody to the Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we are filmmakers, writers, directors, actors, a musician, producers, all the things. And we use all of that incredible wealth of knowledge in order to analyze films and see what they're made of, how they work, sometimes how they work best, sometimes what they could have done better, in our opinion, of course. Every film that we've covered has been made by someone who's made at least one more movie than we have. And so we, uh, we respect the process, uh, quite a, quite a lot. But with that, we have a, we're doing a double header today. We're doing today's episode and next week's episode back to back. And so, uh, yeah, we can just dive right in. What are we covering today, sir? Today we are covering the infamous Braveheart uh, from 1995. So if you have not seen that film, please pause this episode and go watch it because we're going to spoil a bunch of wonderful stuff. For sure, Zs. We'll look at uh, several things. I mean, this is such a big movie. I can't imagine we won't cover a ton. Uh, but at a minimum, we'll look at some of the cinematography, uh, moonlighting. Um, we'll look at some of the story and writing, romance, a little bit of the symbolism, um, directing and performances, uh, the visual storytelling, the way they end a scene, uh, and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film, William Wallace leads his Scottish countrymen in a rebellion against the tyranny of King Edward I of England, directed by Mel Gibson, screenplay by Randall Wallace, cinematography by John Toll, and featuring Mel Gibson as William Wallace, Sophie Marceau as Princess Isabel, Patrick McGowan as Longshanks, Edward, Longshanks King Edward I, Brendan Gleeson as Hamish, uh, Catherine McCormick as Murren, and Angus McFadden as Robert the Bruce. We have beaten the English, but they'll come back. Because you won't stand together. Well, what will you do? I will invade England and defeat the English on their own ground. Uh, <laughs> invade? This is impossible. Why? Why is that impossible? You're so concerned with squabbling for the scraps from Longshank's table that you've missed your God-given right to something better. There's a difference between us. You think the people of this country exist to provide you with position. I think your position exists to provide those people with freedom. And I go to make sure that they have it. Wait. I respect what you said, but remember that these men have lands and castles. It's much to risk. And the common man that bleeds on the battlefield, does he risk less? But from top to bottom, this country has got no sense of itself. Its uh, nobles share allegiance with England. Its clans war with each other. Right. Right. If you make enemies on both sides of the border, 
You'll end up dead. We all end up dead. It's just a question of how uh, and why. I'm not a coward. I want what you want. But we need the nobles. We need them. Now tell me, what does that mean to be noble? Your title gives you claim to the throne of our country. But men don't follow titles. They follow courage. Now our people know you. Noble and common, they respect you. And if you would just lead them to freedom, they'd follow you. And so would I. Great choice. Oh, man. So, so many things, bro. Uh, simple question. Is this a top 10 movie ever made? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On all fronts. On all fronts. I mean, when you talk about cinema, you talk about movies, you, you have to you have to talk about all the things. Right. Because you need to be able to say you can't just say Braveheart is one of the greatest films I've ever made. You have to be able to back that up. And to be able to back that up, you have to be able to say why. And so you think about, okay, what does it take to make a movie? Well, it takes cinematography. It takes writing. It takes acting. It takes timing. It takes editing. It takes story. Oh, my God. <laughs> In spades, man. I mean, there's a reason. So, you know, I think that I also think that sometimes, you know, the Oscars get a bad rap. You know, and I think a lot of it is politicized for sure um, and everything. But in 1995, this won Best Picture. And I can't imagine what would the world would be like if it didn't. Because I, I think that that sometimes the Oscars get it right. In this case, 100% they did. I mean, I sat down at 11... I told you this. I was at 11 o'clock at night to watch <laughs> maybe an hour of this. I was like, okay, I'm a little tired. I'm just going to start it. Two o'clock in the morning rolls around and I'm, I finished the whole thing because I couldn't <laughs> stop. And this is a three hour movie and I, I couldn't bring myself to turn it off because I don't know if it was because I kind of knew what was coming next because I've seen this movie about, you know, I think this might be the fourth time I've seen this movie, at least third, if not fourth. So I kind of knew it was coming next. I was like, oh, I want to see that. Oh, I want to see that. But it wasn't that. It was... It was whatever was happening in that moment set up the next moment so perfectly, even if you didn't know what that next moment was. You know, the the scene you picked was fantastic because it really paints the picture of who William Wallace was and what he stood for. I mean, telling him, telling that guy that he's going to, I would follow you. I would follow you. He's, he's the one with all the power. William Wallace is the one with all the power, but I would follow you. And what, but why is he the one with all the power? Because he has all the courage and this whole movie, I was watching it and I was with a new light kind of like, um, obviously they kill his wife and that's what starts the whole thing. Right. But really what that did for me watching it this time was it canceled out any fear. Right. I think William Wall, at least in this film, William Wallace's, um, strength came from his, his lack of fear. It wasn't rage. I mean, he had, he was angry, of course, but it was, it was just determination and, and fearlessness that drove him. So if you, if you imagine knowing what you have to do, but not doing it because you're afraid, well, take that fear out. And all of a sudden it, everything becomes so clear. And that's what I felt from, from Mel Gibson's performance here. It was 
unbelievable. That speech that he made in the in the room there, his eyes, if you look at his eyes, there's this, there's a determination and a control, like a controlled rage, I guess I would say. Like he didn't, he doesn't do anything out of just straight anger, which I think a lot of times when in, in films today, when you, when either, you know, strong, strong characters are written, there's some kind of like, it's all rooted in rage. And I, I, I think the, the initial battle, first battle that he has after he found out that they killed his wife, definitely there's rage everywhere, right? That's the whole purpose of it. But then it transforms after that. And it becomes into this something bigger than himself, something bigger than than his trying to retaliate for his wife's death. He's already done that. That's already done. He killed the guy who who killed his wife. So what's next? What's next is something bigger. It's my country, you know, and I, and if I die, psh, who gives a shit? I don't, I, everybody dies. And and just this sheer his perform mel gibson's performance is fantastic everyone's performance is fantastic but his is like almost nothing like i've ever seen it just feels so visceral and real and and inspiring to be honest right i look at i I look at at mel gibson and i think i think oh my gosh i wonder how i can implement some of that fearlessness in my life like what what could i be doing that i'm not doing who could I help that I'm not helping? Like it's inspiring. And a lot of that has to do obviously with the, with the acting, but with the writing too, the writing is unbelievable. And Mel Gibson directed this and it and produced and uh, unbelievable. Was this like a passion project for him or something? Like, yeah, I looked it up uh, because I was curious about some of the details behind the scenes and yeah, he, it landed on his desk. The script did. I don't know how, uh, but it became a passion project and he couldn't find anybody to take it on. And so he went to Warner brothers first and they were like, no, we we're not going to finance this whole thing. We just don't think there's a lot of money to be made in Scottish war films. Uh, and so he, he ended up, I think partnering with new line and paramount in order to get the whole thing funded. Uh, but even that came with a lot of headaches, I guess one of the financiers that was going to take like a quarter of the cut I oh uh, didn't want to finish paying for, you know, help paying, for, you know, finish the funding for the film. And apparently, you know, this won't surprise a lot of people. Mel Gibson had some rage issues uh, even even then. And the story that I read was like he smashed a ashtray against the wall fighting with this uh, uh, executive. Uh, and yeah, but I, I try to take all that in with, uh, you know, some sympathy just because that's a lot to have on your plate, you know, and it yeah. doesn't excuse the behavior, but you can understand why someone would get really upset fighting for this project for so long and then wearing it all. Like whatever he's stupid shit he's doing behind the camera, he still has to step in front of the camera and deliver this performance that you're talking about because it is freaking amazing. I see exactly what you mean because it isn't this un, you know, controlled, untamed, you know, rage. It's, it's all tempered with this uh, melancholy sitting beneath this depression that's sitting underneath it all. Uh, and you can feel it. It all makes perfect sense. Not just why the rebellion began, but why it also kept going. Right. Because he's, he's not just fighting, 
for his countrymen anymore. He's just fighting for his own freedom because he's like, what does it matter if I go back and I try to raise a family? Ultimately, I still can't defend them. I still can't protect anyone if we're still living in the same way. The thing that got us here is going to be the same thing that keeps being perpetuated if we don't fix it. Um, Yeah. So that's a small snippet that I, I found, you know, about him taking on all this stuff and, and finding this script on his desk basically. And he was like, Oh, this is amazing. <laughs> I got to do this. That's incredible. I mean, the editing was fantastic too. You know, we, we talk on this podcast a lot about fluff and, and Oh man, this, this two hour movie could have been an hour and a half and it would have been really amazing. You know, and a lot of times when we talk about that, we say it would have been better if it would have been shorter. Um, not always, but not a lot of times. Um, because I, th- I feel like you can get in, you can say what you need to say, you can get out. You don't have to have all this stuff. This movie could have been an hour longer and I would have been fine with it. Like there was no moment that I felt, I felt like it needed to be this long. I felt like the breadth and the importance and the, and the, and all the aspects of the story required all of this setup, all of the, the slow motion shots that happened leading up to things, all of the dialogue, all of the the cuts to different different storylines like it all was necessary to build into this this culmination of, of 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 this finish and if it would have been an hour shorter i would have felt i mean i don't know how i would have felt because i wouldn't have seen the 3 hour version but let's say for example what todd what would i what would you say if i told you that the 3 There's hour, a four cut- hour version Yes. Yeah, I believe it. <laughs> now I want to go watch the four-hour version. <laughs> Correct. What did we cut? What did they cut? Exactly. I have no idea, but the original first cut uh, was 345. Wow. And there's apparently a full hour of unseen footage. Um, I have no idea what that story would be. I have no idea what that script even lo- would look like. Like, what is a four-hour script? You know, is that 300 pages? I have no idea. Uh, but... Yeah, the the theory that I I read online was that eventually it'll come out. Uh, we just have no idea when, um, but it exists apparently. Thirty years later, maybe right. the thirtieth yeah. anniversary. Um, well, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what we're missing. I don't know what we're missing, but it. I loved the length. I thought it was necessary and fantastic. I didn't feel like it was dragging on at any point because I felt like everything had a weight to it. Every, every moment was important. Like I said, because it either came from the moment before it, or it led into the next moment after it, or a moment a little farther down the line, everything linked together. You know, we've talked about the story in a circle and all of these things linking to other things and coming back to, you know, this moment here over here and things. And I thought that this was just seen done so seamlessly uh that it just kept me going you know until two o'clock in the morning watching this movie and i was like oh shit well now it's two o'clock in the morning and i'm all and i'm wrecked you know um and and i the other thing the last thing i'll say is i think that the other reason the writing is incredible is because all of the care none of the characters they were all justified by everything that they did and said like they, they were, they weren't, it wasn't like we saw this person in act one and then we saw this person in act five and they are completely different. You know, they, they were everything that they, that every character did and said throughout the entire film was what that character would do and say it was true to them. And I'm not just talking about William Wallace. Obviously we know that he was 
what he was from beginning to end. And the setup for him was really fantastic too. But, but, uh, the princess, right. Was in, incredible. Like her helping him and falling in love with him. And, and from the very beginning, she had this, she wasn't as aggressive as the, um, the, the prince she was married to or whatever, mm. or the King. She wasn't, uh, you know, she, she sympathized with him and she sympathized with him all the way to the end. His, the people that, that followed him, the, his, uh, that, that followed William Wallace, they were just, their characters were siloed into who they were and all of the dialogue and all of the writing for them was true to them as their characters. And I think in a three hour movie, that's so hard to do. And I don't mean in the writing. In the writing, you can go back and you can look and you can say, oh, yeah, I need to rewrite this because he would have been more like that or she would have been more like this. She probably would have said that. I mean, in the directing, mm-hmm. you know, when you get on set and and it's not on paper anymore, it's actually on ca- in camera and Mel Gibson has to think, OK, what would what would he actually you know, what was he doing in act one? Like, what was he saying? How was he? What was his, his vibe? And now I've got to talk to the actor like, no, you're you're more you're more solemn you know, or, or you're more angry because your father's just died and, and, you know, and they killed him and whatever the case might be, he has to keep all of those characters in his head. And I don't mean on the page, I mean, on the screen and be able to direct them. Absolutely unbelievable. I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how you do it to write and direct something much less, you know, a short film, much less you know, direct and act and produce a film like this. Like it's just mind blowing. It really is. That's, that's such an astronomical amount of work. And there's probably a lot of conversations that you have to have with your cast, right? Even stepping aside from William Wallace, like Mo Gibson has to sit down with, you know, Sophie Marceau and Brendan Gleeson and, you know, uh, Steven, uh, the actor that plays Steven forgot to include him in the show notes. Um, but, and, and have them do their own homework. Of course, they're going to sit down and they're going to map out their own experience because there's a lot happening with Hamish throughout this film. Um, and it's all kind of subplot, but you have the relationship between him and his father. And then he starts to have an eye towards, uh, the princess's maiden. Um, and so you, you let them do their homework and make their notes and see where is this going? And then you sit down and have conversations with them. Like, okay, yeah, I see what you're thinking there, but think of your character in this terms. And a lot of it, I feel like my, my preference is I want an actor to have a strong opinion about who their character is. And then I would just want to come in and try to shape it a little bit with ideas and less about this line. I want you to be angry or this line is that's kind of defeating the purpose. If you can, uh, instead, you know, step in and say, okay, yeah, I see, I see what you mean, but think about your character in these bigger terms and this more philosophical way. I think those are the kind of things that can seep in and start to, you know, propel your character in, in humanistic ways. Um, because if you get too detailed, sometimes I feel like it can just start to feel mechanical and now you're trying to achieve a performance instead of letting all these ideas percolate into your character. And then when you're on set, you feel what this character is supposed to be. And now you can just react instead of, you know, forecast on, onto the set. Uh, that That's certainly the preference, you know, at the end of the day, whatever works for you as an actor is, you know, is, is, is a okay. But I think that's a more fun way to approach it uh, and allows for a lot more magic to just kind of happen on screen. Um, and that's yeah, it's playful. 
Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that's why we do art is you want to create art. I don't do art because I want to design it, you know, in illustrator, uh, and then print it and then paint over it. Right. That's not, that's just not as fun. That's not why I create. If that, if that was it, then I would have gone into programming a long time ago and just <laughs> made a lot of money programming and, and starting businesses or something. But, uh, we, we do art because we want to create and have fun and, uh, and, and, you know, do something that we didn't expect and surprise ourselves. But yeah, man, I agree with everything you're saying. Like this movie for me, I saw this, um, and this was my favorite movie for years. It was my favorite movie until Lord of the Rings came out because then I was like, Oh, uh, this is a nine hour Braveheart in fantasy. Like it took, <laughs> it took a nine hour Braveheart to knock down Braveheart. <laughs> like it's, it just is, you know, it's such an incredible movie uh, and it's moving and it's nice because yeah, it's, it's, it's war, but it's not just about war. You have to think uh, also about who William Wallace is in context of this story that's being told. He's not a king. He's not even nobleman. And I think that's one of the most foundational things about this film is there is a, a, a guy who is impacted by his circumstances and he's like, I'm not waiting around for my betters to, to help me. I'm going to do it myself. Um, and that clip, you know, is, is touching on all of that. He's telling these guys, y'all are so busy, worried about yourselves that you're forgetting why you exist in the first place. And it's, and that's not so that you can have more. It's so that you can provide more. Um, and you're not doing that. I'm going to do that. You know, y'all can go to hell and I'll go to Texas. Like he was just all about it. <laughs> and it's just, I, you can't help but feel, you know, moved by that sentiment because, uh, this guy wasn't fighting for money even after it was offered. And I loved all these little moments where he's being offered an out and he never takes it. He never says, okay, yeah, I'll take the cash. I'll take the land. Um, and that'll be good enough for me. I'll have mine. It was always, you know, there's even at the end, whenever he's going to a sure fire betrayal for the second time, uh, he's still, he still goes for it. He, I, I love that you can only get betrayed if there's hope, mm. right? You're hoping these people, uh, are going to honor you. And I love, I love that about the story that he just keeps getting betrayed because he keeps hoping. And it's like, man, you know what? I hope that's me. I hope I can keep hoping yeah. enough to get my head kicked in. Great point. Great it's so point. easy. To write. I, yeah. That's the one thing I was wondering, like he knows, like he's being told, he's being told this is a trap. I know, but we have to try. He has that. He literally says he, he, he hopes, I mean, not the word, but yeah. he hopes that there, that there is some semblance of reality there and is willing to, uh, as always willing to put his life on the line. And there's, it's almost like how I felt watching it was a little bit like there is somewhat of a kind of freedom that he has mm. after losing her. And that's a wrong way to put it. I get it. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm coughing. There's a wrong way to put it because obviously he would rather not be free. He would rather have her. But to have it's like if you took all of your possessions and everyone that you knew on the planet and you got rid of everything and you had nothing and you were stark naked in the middle of nothingness, you would probably feel pretty free. You would be sad as shit, you know, but you would, you would feel weightless, 
right? And that's the way that I feel his whole performances, this whole film and all of his actions are weightless. And, and it's from the dialogue and from the acting, right? It's yes, the dialogue, but who cares about the dialogue? Yeah. It's the way that he says the words that that is really what it is. Like when he goes to meet to meet them on uh, to pick a fight on the battlefield, it's perfect. He's like on his horse walking around them. You know, you go tell him, yes, we'll take your offer. If he comes and he kisses his ass, <laughs> whatever his own ass, it's it's effortless and and there is no weight to it, and it's just we're doing this. There's no way out, you know? And it's so important that that brings me to a note. I did not even make, uh, I didn't even think to make it, which is the, the importance of the entire beginning of the film is so critical to the entirety of the movie. Like yeah. I know it's an extra, whatever, 15, you know, minutes, uh, but that runtime pays dividends because it's so important to establish him and Murren, uh, at the beginning of the film. And so whenever you see them courting, you know, and he has that line, I've loved you, always have, you know it. And it's because of that, whenever it's taken away from him, you already know he's not going to move on because this is what he's wanted his entire life. There's yeah. nothing to move on to. Whereas if we had just met them, you know, we cut out the, the, the early childhood where you also establish how evil, you know, Longshanks is and um, the bitterness of all that. If you cut all that out and just focusing on the romance side of it, uh, then you, you don't feel how important she is to him. You just know, oh, he had love and that's good. That'll get you somewhere. But knowing that this was a lifelong love, that gets you to the deadness of his eyes where he's like, yeah, I have nothing else to lose. You've taken it all. So why do I care? Fine. Kill me. I can risk it. Yeah. I'm already dead in his eyes. Yes. He, he probably already felt dead. Yeah. Yes. It's just. It does so much to th that, but also we know that he's been trained. Mm. You know, we, he's been trained mentally and physically to, to battle. But you don't feel that when you first see him as a grown man. You know, you feel this playful, you know, happy, uh, jovial kind of dude. And the first time that you actually see him you know, battling is after she dies. So, so all, you know, of William Wallace is, is not physical. It's all, it's all this until then it's all this, like being himself being, yeah, happy, jovial, like, you know, playful. That's such a good point because that, and we see all of that in the, uh, the romantic, you know, courtship period, uh, where they're falling in love. He's so light. He's light on his feet. He's hopping over things. He's rearing up in the pasture on his horse. Um, he's running around. He's very fleet of foot, you know, and then that creates so much contrast for the afterwards where he does none of those things. He doesn't smile. He doesn't laugh. He's not joking around. Um, he's just, you know, existing now for one purpose alone um, to free his country. And that's God. Yeah. The, the writing yeah. and that's directing and performance for sure of uh, just really focusing. How can I make sure people feel that switch? And he does it in a way that you don't feel oppressed by it, but you feel, you feel the heaviness, you feel the weightiness yeah. of uh, what he's dealing with for sure. God. Yeah. It's not a, like, I get this feeling like he doesn't want to fight. Yes. Mm -hmm. He kills everyone, but he doesn't want to like that. If, if he could wave a wand and everything would be, and there would be no fighting and his, fan, his, his, his country would be free. He would do it. 
He doesn't want to kill all these people. He doesn't want to go to battle, even though he goes out and picks the fight. He knows that this battle has to happen and they have to win. So he goes and does that. It's it's purely because he knows that they have to win. Now, if he if he thought that there was any way that that his country could be free and that battle wouldn't happen, I truly in my heart think that he would he would be okay with that and he would go for that because he's not like I said, I don't feel rage behind him. I feel this determination to to accomplish accomplish this this overall good that's bigger than himself you know because he has nothing left like you said yeah and it and it's the all these outs that really allow us to see why he's doing what he's doing because obviously he gets the the payment offering but he also uh, has that great conversation right before he rides off to his doom with uh, hamish and he tells him like i don't want to do this either i don't want to die i want to live i want to have a family Oh my gosh, the writing is so on the nose. <laughs> it's so th- saying what we think as the viewer. Yeah. You know, like how how can you do that? You know, he's and then he's just he addresses it. I don't yes. want to die. I don't, like, we, oh my god. We have to hear those things, right? Or else yes. you just think he's got, he just has a death wish. And it's so important for the people around him to bring it up like, do you want to die? I don't want to be a martyr, you know? And so having those moments are just critical so that we can actually feel what he's feeling through the end because it's important all the way up to that point you could start to make the argument like yeah i guess he does have a death wish but waiting until that moment is perfect to reinforce his his philosophy uh, because it's like man it's not about any of that it's just what's the point if we don't have freedom and i love and that's i think maybe the number one thing i love about this movie is it's it's emphasis on the most fundamental thing to humanity which is liberty uh there's so many films and i think in modern politics everyone kind of gets caught up in uh this idea of freedom and liberty is m- so much more convoluted and uh not what it's about you know that this film is trying to bring it up in in, in that, you know, so many people, it seems to be about what they can get, you know, and and how they can influence society and all these things. And this movie is making a case for a much more simpler vision of, of freedom, which is just to be left alone, uh, just to live my life the way I see it. Uh, and, and it's none of your business what we do. Um, and I appreciate that because it's being made in a number of ways. There's certainly what William is, is, you know, fighting for. Uh, but there's also this other, uh, and it's dicey, uh, to say the least, but there's also the freedom of the prince. We see that he is not free to marry who he wants to marry. Right. Uh, he's beholden to this princess and as a gay man, as a gay prince, right. He's got no options. He needs to produce heirs and all this and that, but even behind closed doors, uh, he can't freely live that right. There's a public life and there's your private life. He can't even in his private life pursue that. He doesn't have the freedom either. Um, and that's kind of the trappings of, of royalty, uh, for sure. But even more so by his father, right? The King Edward the first, um, is just killing him. And we see the impact that that has on princess Isabel. Um, and that I, this whole movie is about love and it's just so beautiful. Um, the romance obviously is just huge because the entire rebellion is based on the love between, uh, William and Murren. And we can see what true love can compel, right? When they start courting. I love it because we just sit in their romantic vibe. There's very little dialogue. 
and it and there's almost no story progression the story does not advance a whit right uh it's just enjoying the romance and uh we just sit and appreciate and we fall in love with them falling in love um until of course she's killed and that whole sequence though is important because we need that to resonate beyond words that's why the dialogue is insufficient um we need to feel it like he feels it so that it impacts us the entirety of the film so that when we get to the end we see her pop up we're devastated oh my god yeah (laughs) it's i watched this twice first time straight through i don't think i took a break and then the second time i was just pausing and running to the bathroom grabbing drinks um making notes uh i watched two hours last night and I was like, ah, oh, it's really late. I'll finish the the last hour in the, uh, in the morning so that I'm a little fresh coming into the podcast. And even then this morning, about 20 minutes before the end, I paused it. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, I need to wash my face, brush my teeth and get ready. And then came back literally in the last 20 minutes. And this is right as he's going to his execution. And still, with all that interruption of story, she pops up and I'm like in what? tears. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's just too perfect. It's just absolutely amazing. And what I love about that, uh, is they, they, they clearly have this star-crossed lover, you know, syndrome, um, as I think Shakespeare coined it. And they both die in very similar ways, right? She gets her throat cut. Um, and I love that we don't see it. It's out of frame. We see her reaction as opposed to when the the magistrate gets killed. We see that. And so we see that we only ever see violence enacted on people who deserve it. That's mm. the that's the idea there. Right. Uh, because we don't see William. Mm. We don't see him ever get hurt other than the, right. the wound in the with the arrow. But at, during the torture sequence, we never see him get hurt. You're right. We don't see his bowels get, you know, right. It's just. We only ever see the violence enacted on those we want to see violence on, uh, for the most part. In battle, there's some exceptions to that, but with the big moments, only only the important uh, you know points are made with either watching violence or withholding it um, based on what the audience should be feeling. And so we watch her, you know, bleed out, and then he gets his head severed, right? Um, and what's amazing uh, that I only noticed this this past time, or at least consciously noticed um which is when she's about to die she looks into the landscape she's looking for him and in that moment we all see that we all feel it and we're just wondering is he going to save her um and of course he's not there but what's really cool is kind of the harmony that they bring in whenever he's about to die right as the axe is falling and he's looking into his friend's faces and we're wondering are they going to spring to his aid and they're not but that's when she pops up she's there for him and the way that he wasn't there for her, that he couldn't be. And it's very subtle, but I think what it does is it creates a feeling of rightness. And you can't put your finger on it, but it's like, ah, oh, yeah, this hurts. But damn it if it doesn't feel right. Right. Um, and it's so subtle. It's perfect. It's so perfect. But I think I think you really do feel it. And it's maybe not top of mind. It may, may, may not be super 
conscious, but it's right there beneath the surface, uh, knowing what she experienced and what she was looking for. We just, it just feels right. It's just really incredible filmmaking that, that they're doing there. Uh, because I think it's very much embedded in that experience in a way that you may not put your finger on, but it 100% is impacting it. There's a lot of film theory where you're like, I think this is kind of carrying over, but I don't know. I think this is one of those things that is both film theory and absolutely paying dividends, uh, in, 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 you know, the finale. Yeah. With the, the, the love though, the romance, uh, we also see, yes, what love can compel, right? A revolution. Uh, but we can also see what a lack of love, you know, looks like and creates, um, and how it feels right through princess Isabel, who's trapped in this loveless marriage. And then, you know, that, that whole storyline starts to create opportunities for them. And it starts to give us another out for William. Cause you're like, Oh, wait, there's hope. You could, you could maybe find something else with, with princess Isabel. Uh, and it's really beautiful because he denies it in order to finish his, his job. Right. Cause she gives him even at the end, even right before he steps onto the, to the stage, she's giving him one last out. And he doesn't take it. He's like, no, I need to, you know, obey my principles or else what was the point? What, what did all of this happen for? Um, I, I can't betray my entire country. It's just great writing, man. It's really it's good writing. It's uh, amazing. Yeah, I love the the battles. I love that they progress very evenly, right? They grow in size and importance. Because here's the thing. It probably would have been easy to create more battles, and I'm sure they would have been great and they would have been cool and maybe even added to the story, but they may have also been a little redundant. Instead, we see the initial rebellion, right? And then we grow into the next village and we see them start to, to, to build their, their army. And then suddenly we're at Sterling, right? The, the Battle of Sterling is their first really big battle. And it's such a good battle because, God, uh, the real story is really interesting. It's a very... Battle of Thermopylae uh, situation where they waited across a bridge and the the invading army was crossing the bridge. They get, waited until they got like halfway across and then they just started slaughtering everybody. Um, it was a rout, but it was tactical. I think that's the important part. Even though Braveheart didn't do the exact battle, they did emphasize the, the importance of tactics and the intelligence of William Wallace. And so the idea is still inserted there very much. Uh, but also, uh, for the film love that we see the sentiment of these two random soldiers, right? I love that because we never see the troops in war films and it helps us understand the stakes and gives us a face to win over because now his, his speech has to compel everyone in the audience, but it's reflected in these two guys. Um, and, and ultimately we do, I think win over at least one of them. And this film, I think just keeps doing that. It keeps creating these fresh perspectives, especially for the time. I feel like most war films are told from the point of view of the noble, the, the Kings. Um, and so just kind of circling back to William isn't any of those things. Uh, this film kind of upsets the, the, you know, the cart by continually giving us the face of the commoner instead of the face of we not only do we not care what the nobility thinks we detest them <laughs> like they are not the heroes at all until the very end whenever uh, robert the bruce finally you know uh chooses to not be a a, a prick uh you know following his father's lead and that's a hard thing for sure another kind of full circle that we see between hamish and his dad 
and Robert the Bruce and his dad. Um, there's, there's a lot of, you know, father son dynamics at play in this film. Uh, same thing with young William and Malcolm, his father, there's constant thread about men and their sons, um, and what it means to follow them and what it means to, to stand up to them. Um, it's, it's pretty beautiful. Um, yeah, the other, other little battle moment, God, that initial rebellion, just to rewind back to the beginning here, or halfway point uh but it's so good right he's a he's avenging Murren, but it's quiet this whole sequence is just so quiet and i love the music choice during the sequence because it's really just tones very light drumming some choir but it's all deep it's not big it's just seething underneath the action, like the rebellion, like the people, like everything this country's feeling. It's just seething underneath. Uh, and it's so much easier to play the big music and, and pound the drums and make it really big. Instead, it's slow. And I love how they intercut the slow motion with the real time. And sometimes they speed it up. Uh, it's just, God, it's beautiful and it's heartbreaking uh, because you feel the contempt, you feel uh, the vengeance, the thing you were talking about at the beginning about how it's just pure, you know, revenge. Uh, and it is, it's just anger, it's rage, but it's so underplayed in, in, a, in a sense through the choice of music, how he doesn't say a word. I don't know if even at the end of that sequence, he says a word, it's just him. And you just know any dialogue he says, is unnecessary. It's just, uh, what a waste. You could completely undercut all the emotion of the moment by using words. Uh, as a, as a great poet once said, words are very unnecessary. <laughs> they can only do harm. <laughs> so, mode, baby. Yeah. <laughs> it is just a great, great use of, uh, I mean, it's great directing, uh, to be, you know, pretty frank, the narration throughout the film. I thought it was really good. Uh, there's so much history and context and they choose very quick moments to insert all of that through narration. I don't even think there's there's no titles through this film. This is exactly the kind of film that you open with a title sequence. And you say, oh, hey, in the year 1290, you know, people were really pissed off at the king because he was a king and they were they were not. You know, and it's like you don't need to do any of that. A little narration can both set us up uh, contextually while also introducing all the players. Uh, and it's just very efficient. The, the efficiency in this film is really, really good. And they even do that uh, later on during the, uh, the knighthood when he's getting knighted. Uh, they have this really solid aside where it could have been this whole breakout sequence between Robert the Bruce and uh, the rest of his no noblemen, right? And instead, we're watching him getting knighted and then suddenly it's Robert the Bruce and one of the noblemen. He's like, hey, any idea what his politics are? No, but he carries a lot of weight with the commoners. That's it. That's in mm -hmm. 10 seconds, you accomplish so much. There's no need for the breakout scene. Just drop the important point as an aside, right? That he's not political in the same way that they are, that he has no allegiance. And so now we understand a bunch of things. One, they can't control him because he doesn't have their same desires. Um, but also they don't know what to make of him. And so they can't trust him. And so we feel the conflict already built in between him and the nobility. Uh, we don't know where that's going to go. And that's just beautiful, you know, stuff to put on the back boiler uh, because it certainly builds uh, to for the rest of the film. Um, some of the symbolism, the rock contest at the beginning. 
I love the uh, the the whole you know I'm gonna throw a rock, can you throw it further, uh, farther? And it's so good, right? Because the large rock is unwieldy and ultimately misses its target, right? William doesn't move and stands there and throws a small rock with precision. And I think it's kind of symbolizing the entire film, right? A large army against a small one. It's intelligence versus brawn. Uh, that's ultimately played out with uh, actual, you know, swords and spears. And it's just all set up there in that little little moment between him and someone who is physically superior. Why not? Why not just uh, create a fun moment that proves a point uh, and underscores how smart and intelligent William Wallace is uh, that to your point a minute ago, he came back from his uncle much wiser and smarter. Um, yeah. We'll circle back to that in a minute. Yeah. Other symbolism, uh, Falkirk, he takes an arrow into the chest. This is very simple. Uh, on the one hand, you're like, Oh my God, why isn't he dead? The point isn't to kill him. The point is that it's symbolic of the betrayal and loss that he's experiencing in that moment. And it's a, it is an arrow into the heart. They're being very on the nose, once again, with the representation of what's going on within the scene context. And let's just put a dagger in his chest, you know, to just let's drive it home. And so the arrow was never supposed to hurt him and impact the rest of the story. It was only supposed to represent uh, what he was actually experiencing uh, in that moment. Yeah. Directing. Uh, well, before we get to that, because that's really good stuff. Cinematography. Now, first off, I want to say that I got to work with John Toll, who was the cinematographer of this film, um, and certainly went the probably the high point of my acting and, and film career to this point. Uh, I got to work with him on a Pepsi commercial, uh, which was a bittersweet experience. Uh, but yeah, he shot this Pepsi commercial that I was in, and oh. I got to actually meet him because I was cast as a principal. Um, I got to meet him and shake his hand and talk for, you know, a few minutes with him. And just uh, most people were fawning over Braveheart, rightly so. Uh, at the time, I was coming off of Cloud Atlas, which I just loved. Uh, great story. And there were some things that he was doing with cinematography that had been rattling around in my brain. And now I'm suddenly in front of him like, oh, dude. I loved what you were doing in this moment. Like it was just really cool. And I was probably doing all the things you shouldn't be doing as an actor talking to, you know, someone you uh, just adore. Uh, and, and I was like, I don't care. I'm going to like just approach him. Cause I, everyone was kind of afraid to approach him and no one was talking to him. Uh, and we were between setups and he had a, gr had a huge crew. And I was like, Nope, I'm going to go shake this motherfucker's hand and, and tell him how much I love him. Uh, and it was great. He was super gracious, super uh, chill. I wish I was a better actor. Um, I, it's one of those things in hindsight, you're like, I get what was happening. I just botched it. That day as an actor, I just completely botched it. We were doing the shot. Um, the, this commercial was about the first Super Bowl halftime show and or how the halftime was invented was the was the gag and so it takes place in like whatever the 1920s and so all the women were dressed up in you know flapper girl kind of outfits and um we were football players were dressed up in these old-timey helmets with the leather helmet and there's no face mask and you're in these terrible pads and um i have a really funny picture from that day i'll put it in the show notes so that uh you can check it out but the um the fun part was I was doing this shot where you're firing off the line, line of scrimmage. And the idea was they dug a hole 
and man, they found this beautiful countryside. And I was really pissed off at the final edit because we got out there and they, John Toll picked the, I don't know if he picked the location or what, but he got this gorgeous shot of these, of us playing football with the rolling hill country where we're out in somewhere like Bastrop or something, but there was these rolling hills in the background at dawn and it's just unbelievably beautiful. There's mist in the background and all these hues in the sky and the final edit just had none of that. It was like they, they blew out the sky and it was just like, God, I'm sorry, Mr. Toll. <laughs> I don't know why they did that to you. Uh, point them out, point out the name of that man. And so they wanted to get the shot of uh, the us firing off the line and they dug a hole, stuck the camera down there to face it up directly into the sky. And the, the shot is looking straight up and you want the football players looking down uh, so that whenever they, they hit, right, they go from, it was like six inches of movement, but you know, hike and then you hit. And now my head is on his shoulder. His head is on my shoulder. And we're both looking down. It looks great into the camera. And I just couldn't get my face all the way down. And for whatever reason, I just couldn't do it. And I think I got pulled and they were like, okay, let's try someone else. I'm like, okay, oh. uh, all good. Like you, you live and you learn. Um, my real offense is they cut me out of all my other scenes. And so don't drink Pepsi folks. No, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Coke uh, man. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and so, yeah, but it was a, it was a really cool shot. And yeah, I got to work with John Toll for a day and he's uh, as cool as you think he is for sure. Um, but the cinematography of Braveheart, no one cares about my, uh, Pepsi commercial sure. is, is, I love the widescreen choice. They shoot it really wide, really helps fit in all the armies on the screen. They do that shot of the horses, like invading at, at uh, Sterling and you can just pack the frame out with all these horses, absolutely no sky, very little ground in some of the shots. And it's just nothing. You can feel the oppression that's coming at you. Uh, it's nothing but horse uh, and, and weapons, right? And shooting widescreen, you're really able to fill it up exactly with that intention. Uh, same thing whenever the armies are running, right? You can fill it up with guys just furious and running um, soldiers. If you get too tall in some of these shots, uh, you kind of lose the impact. And so uh, keeping it more wide uh, instead of, you know, taller and your, your aspect ratio uh, really helps, you know, bring out the the violence, you know, of, of what we're about to experience when they're charging each other. Um, and of course, in war itself, right, you can really flush out the left and the right while someone is getting mil killed in the middle. Now you can still have a lot of stuff going on left and right. Uh, it's just a really excellent way to fill out the, the frame in a war film, I think. Is my impression anyway. The way they shoot moonlight is really interesting, right? The wedding ceremony, way unnatural. Like the night is lit very white. It's just, it's not moonlight at all. And then later in the dreams, it's very blue, right? Whenever he's dreaming about her, it's super, super blue. And I love it because night, there's no way to light it naturally. It's always unnatural um, because, you know, for the most part, up until recently, especially, there's no way to naturally light a night scene because the natural way is with moonlight. And if you were to really see what moonlight looks like, it's a lot like the sun. It's a very small light source in the sky. So the light is actually very, very hard. But because of how little light there is, it feels soft. Um, whenever you're walking around at night, it feels very soft just because 
there's just not a lot of it. Uh, and so the, the difference between shadow and brightness is very small. It's very low contrast in, in that sense. Uh, the dark is, of course, is very, very black. Um, but the highlights are, there are no highlights, right? Uh, and so with that in mind, like maybe there's no real way to light a night scene. You can kind of do whatever you want uh, because uh, who is it? Was it Deacons? Uh, no, I don't remember who it was. Uh, but there's this great quote that I've said on the show before where someone's setting up a shot, this DP is setting up a shot and the director or maybe someone, the producer or someone kind of walks up to him and he's like, Hey man, where's that light supposed to be coming from? Where's the source uh, of that light? And he's like, it's coming from the same place as the music. All right, back off. <laughs> because uh, you know what? It's a movie. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I love it. So I think watching night scenes is really fascinating because everyone kind of does it in their own way. Some people put like a condor in the sky and they just blast a bunch of beams. And um, if you make it kind of unidirectional, it feels natural. And that's a lot of what they did in Braveheart. Braveheart is a lot of unidirectional light where it's just coming from one direction. Um, and so you feel like, okay, it's motivated from the moon. Uh, wherever it may be somewhere out there and that way as they're walking through the scene you know shadows kind of naturally occur and it just feels right because why not um yeah last pieces of notes are about directing and performances something you said earlier which is there's lots of breathing room they really let scenes take their time most of them do they let it develop and you get a sense of the emotional undercurrent because of that uh, which works because of how clear the stakes are, right? Good writing allows for a lot of good directing. And you could probably trim 20 minutes of breathing out of this movie and you would wreck it. <laughs> you would destroy the movie. Uh, but it's so good because every scene, because of the way it's set up in the writing, you can allow a look to communicate something that you don't need words for. Uh, the situation just, you know, implies everything you need to know. And now, watching William hunting a deer and you have a guy charging him with a sword. Well, the previous scene, the writing in that allowed it to happen because Stephen, this is the scene where Stephen is, you know, charging him. Stephen is this wild card. We have no idea, right? He, he hit a knife. He hit, held it to Hamish's dad. And now we're like, this guy is kind of unhinged. He's talking to God uh, like he's in the room and we don't know what to make of him. So immediately, immediately we cut to, well, let's see if he's about what he's about. Uh, and now through this almost entirely quiet scene, uh, we can see, oh crap, we really don't know what this guy's about. He's charging, he's got, a, he's got a sword and it's all in slow motion. And ultimately he saves his life from the other guy who came with gifts, right? And war, you never know uh, who's on your side and who's not until your life is in their hands. And so now we see Steven's not only on his side, but that allows us to trust him for the rest of the film because he's a very important part of the film. Whenever he says, it's my island. Yeah, he sounds crazy, but maybe there's something to it. And that scene where the, the Irish army greets the Scottish army, mm -hmm. one of the best in cinema, one of oh the best God. scenes ever made. It, I mean, do you see the correlation in Endgame? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the first thing I thought of. Anyway, nicely done. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so good writing allows for a lot of good breathing and allow you to kind of sit in the stakes. Another thing they do is end scenes on a really good note. One of the best 
It's at the very beginning where William wants to go to war with his father. He's like, I, I can help. I can fight, right? And his dad's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I know you can fight. But it's our wits that make us men. That line resonates the entire movie because he immediately leaves the scene. And this gives that line space to resonate and be remembered instead of being lost in more dialogue back and forth. Like they could have hammered out that point a little bit more, but you don't need to just let him sit and wrestle with it. Um, and now we'll feel it. We'll feel the importance of everything because that is kind of the thesis, right? It's at the very end, he wants his wits because he's like, it's important. I could numb myself and, and, and not experience all the pain that's coming my way. But I think it's important to keep my wits because, uh, of course, that's what, you know, becomes this catalyst for, you know, the, the big revolution um, yeah. in, in with, the, with the Scots. Yeah. And so the way you end the scene, if you're trying to make a point, is to make your point, make it concise, right? Brevity is the soul of wit. Shakespeare, once again, get the F out. Like, go. <laughs> Let us sit yeah. on it. And, of course... I love what happens after that. Uh, there's so many great performances and great visual storytelling that's going on in this film. Because after that scene, William's dad dies and he's waiting for him, right? He wakes up that morning and he's calling for his dad and he's expecting him to be home already. And then he goes outside and, uh, and he sees the cart. He starts calling out, you know, for his dad or whatever. And we see him realize his dad has died just by watching his reaction. There are never any words. No one says, hey, sorry, man, your father died. Uh, no, we feel it. And we begin, the exposition takes place through watching characters, just observing his expression in silence. And we sit with him while he lives in a world for just a little longer while where his father is still alive. Turns his back on them. He's like, I don't want to, I'm not ready yet. Yeah. Great. And then you hear the, come here, boy. Oh. Oh man. Yeah. That's, it's great writing, great directing. And, and it, it's one of those things that could have been possible where it wasn't right. It wasn't in the script. That's a thing a director really needs to be looking for is how can I turn this dialogue, this exposition into a moment we experience? Mm. Cause if it's just dialogue, you're not really experiencing a moment. You're hearing about a moment, but right. if you can experience it and find a way Okay, that's gonna you know punch your audience in the in the in the stomach. You know that's what you really want to create a really profound cinematic experience. Is how can we feel and understand exposition through an experience? Um, and it's trust. It's a lot of you know we talk about it probably every episode. Trusting the audience, you have to trust the audience is going to understand uh, what's going on there. And it's easy to trust because the writing is so well done. Yeah. Um, the other performance that it's just so good. The little girl acting at the beginning is mm. so amazing. I don't know how much of that is her just being a really good actor, which she's not an actor. I, I looked her up unwittingly. Actually, I was trying to look up the boy at the end of the film. I was like, who is that kid? I wonder if he's still acting. Uh, and instead of pulled up, I just assumed that she was and that she was an actor at the time, but it pulled up an article about her and she was not an actor. She got, this gig somehow or another. And she stopped acting after that. So it was like, she did this one movie and went and led a normal childhood. Wow. And then became part of the film industry. And she's acting once again. Uh, and it, for her, she was like, this was an amazing time. Mel Gibson did a great job looking after me, really felt taken care of on set. And yeah, he used to parade me on set on his shoulders. Like I had just this beautiful memory of 
working on this random movie and people still come up to me like you were in that movie she's like yeah i didn't realize how important it was to people in fact she said that watching the movie she she didn't understand everything and that at the end of the film she thought they really killed mel gibson (laughs) (laughs) how old was she when she watched that movie oh man probably seven or eight yeah oh Uh, no you do not let a seven or eight year old watch this movie oh my god but her performance in that that sequence at the the gravesite is just so good, and I don't know how much of that is her versus just simple directions and allowing context again to provide the emotion. Because you know this is the kind of thing as a director I'm going to be like, okay, walk here, watch him, just keep watching him, you know. Okay, start to turn now. Okay, now speed up, walk fast, and. It's probably a combination of things. I think you want to do a lot of takes and start exploring. Get her comfortable in the moment um, around the cameras with all these actors. And if you just have, if she is having a good day and at her age, that's a coin toss. Um, but if she's having a good day, and this is something you work through probably in the casting phase of, you know, can she just show up and, and follow direction? Cool. That's, that's about all we need to not be super shy but even with that she's still a kid you just don't know and maybe you do it again tomorrow because she's not having a good day but if she is when she is and you capture that moment just do it a bunch shrink the set as few people as possible have you know her mom and dad and uh on standby maybe not the siblings um because who knows what that would breed (laughs) uh but have parents on standby um small small set and just do it again. Yeah. Hey, what about this? And let's take a break. Let's go have a snack. Hey, let's do it again. Maybe try this. And then eventually you're just going to find this little magic moment because she, there's this really long take where she walks up to him and you're just watching her watch him and his grief and the music is taking over. And it's just, you feel her feeling things, even though it's probably completely the audience, you know, projecting and it just works. You know, they just find this great moment. I'm in awe. Like that's one of the best short of like a Dakota fanning or an L fanning. Like it's one of the best performances I've ever seen from a, from a young actor. Just fantastic. And the little boy is great too. Don't get me wrong. Like he's a little older of course, but uh, he's still doing a lot of heavy lifting in that first, uh, that opening chapter. My God, a lot of visual storytelling, just two more notes here and a glance at the beginning in a glance, we know Robert the Bruce's father isn't abroad, right? He's home. We know through implication instead of expositional dialogue, right? Uh, how's your father doing? Oh, he's great. He'll be back anytime. You know, he's just away uh, doing important things. And then we feel him kind of hold his breath, kind of look up at the other uh, ramparts. And then we see a, a shadowy figure and we feel something. We're like, okay, maybe, maybe what he's saying isn't entirely accurate. And then we're introduced later and we're like, okay, I have the complete picture of, you know, what's going on here. His dad is sick and he doesn't want to be seen that way, etc. But the real great visual storytelling moment, I think, is when the prince marries uh, Princess Isabel. Because we know so much through this little sequence of cuts, right? Their marriage is loveless because we see at the altar, at the altar, the prince glances at his lover Right, the lover smiles back. The king sees it, and then the prince, for his wedding kiss, pecks the princess on the cheek. 
like we're like oh no we see everything going on here oh man it's just great visual storytelling because we understand their marriage in mere seconds and how everyone there feels about it everyone there understands except her like i don't know if she ever sees him but everyone else is very well uh you know clued in so it's just great you don't need to spell everything out just let us watch people watching each other um and the the scenario the context provides all that you need to understand what's going on yeah so that's kind of can you talk a little bit about the music how amazing the music was the music is so good is this james horner um yeah god he did titanic he did avatar yeah dude how good and they they find their moments right they really do find their moments to and i was just watching that scene um earlier today where he gets knighted mm-hmm. and the transition from the battlefield to there it's just beautiful swell of music and it's all time and i was just imagining what it's like scoring that because it's such a dance between editing and scoring that a lot of the times as a composer you don't always get rhythm in your in your score um, because the edits may not follow a perfect rhythm. Um, and so you kind of have to create the rhythm on your own and end it when it's convenient for the story to end, not when it's convenient for the music to end. Uh, this is a big, big difference between scoring something and editing to a soundtrack, right? One is intentional, right? Oh, I have the music. I'm going to create with this in mind and all these edits are going to land on certain beats or maybe uh, work around the beats, depending on what you're doing. The score is almost the opposite. You know, I think especially in some of these older films, I don't know how much temping they were doing, um, especially with these sweeping scores like this. It's so big. It's more of, okay, we need to swell. There's dialogue coming and uh, the cinematography is going to carry us through and God, it's just good. What did you think? How did you feel about it? Exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, w- the timing was what I noticed more than anything was, oh, they obviously, I mean, they might have known the pieces, you know, Mel Gibson might have known the pieces that he wanted to make that he liked that Horner was working on and they worked mm. together. But I don't think it was recorded until the edit was locked. It just doesn't feel like it because especially back then is this is 1995. So it's not like there was like Pro Tools. Maybe there was like a some kind of of the earliest version of Pro Tools. I don't, I, I'm not sure or whatever. But like recording in a computer was not a thing, right? It was he recorded with the LSO, the London Symphony Orchestra, and so you're in the pit or you're in the 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 hall and you're watching the film and he's conducting as the film is happening, trying to time ends, you know, as close as possible. That's I I'm 99 sure that's why they ha- that's what they did for this film, and it, it it's brings it to that level of to to your point you know you're not you're not performing this or or writing this for the sake of the music you're writing it for the sake of the story and so to conduct it to the story to the cut edited story makes total sense i mean i'm sure that probably while they were editing they were editing to temp work you know to like like temp pieces or something like that but then the actual scoring of it i I'm pretty sure they had to do it in, you know, like live perform it live. Yeah. And that's still common today, actually. Like uh, when people still go to the score, they'll still run it on the screen so that you can feel it. And I think, man, I, as a musician that impacts you, you know, that Mm. 
you're able to watch and you're feeling you're emoting into the into the story that much better as a, as opposed to you know just doing it like any other piece uh it's big big difference i i did concert band back in high school and the difference between playing for a live audience was really different from playing in the you know band hall like it's just i cannot imagine what it's like to to play i mean you've done this you know, you used to mm-hmm. uh, play live to our short film threads. And did that ever change? Did you feel a difference there? Or was it still like, oh, I'm on stage anyway, so I'm, I'm doing my thing regardless? But you're also yeah, watching Yeah, I mean, it, well, though. we didn't really watch it. Yeah, that's fair. You know, while we were performing. But no, it, it I, I can imagine that your performance has some a different kind of life to it. I just mean that I like noticed the the beats uh, in this film more so than than in other films you know because yeah they do that all the time for sure but here i feel like it was just scored to to hit marks to like yeah. finish a phrase at this moment finish a phrase at this moment transition at this moment and it was like just timed really really well like like the music was specific for these uh, these moments right and then the transitions were specific as well so yeah it was incredible. incredible i had uh you know what i had strong vibes of lord of the rings um in here like there's certain little accents with like a flute or something and i could just hear uh-huh. the shire during certain moments uh, <laughs> it's <was> just beautiful <laughs> like I, well this was before that right absolutely so, yeah so um, maybe lord of the rings have some vibes of braveheart correct I, <laughs> Horder, I mean Horder was is brilliant i mean i don't know what he's done recently i was looking on his imdb and it it looks like it there's not a whole lot since like 2011 or 2010 so uh maybe not awards but maybe he's done other stuff so but he's incredible one of the best ever one of the best ever um yeah i'm seeing he's got some stuff uh on willow yeah i don't know if that's just using his music from the past or if it's uh the new, new show the on yeah the new willow yeah, coming okay. out um he scored right. scored yeah i don't know the new sure. IMDb I mean, obviously he's one up. of the greats so he's working totally you know. totally no doubt he's working yeah. but uh <laughs> that would anyway. be a waste uh, if he wasn't nice um yeah i mean that's man i don't know i could pick a scene and just talk about it, every single scene in here uh, i just think it's so good everyone like you said man everyone's performance is so good but mel gibson Best picture. Imagine, man, you decide to direct a movie in your first movie. You win best picture and best director. Mm-hmm. Like when nobody w- wanted to back you. That just goes to show you do what you want to yeah. do the way you want to do it. There's no there's no right or wrong, you know. That's so, yes, I think that is the the big lesson, you know, for, for people like us, uh, creatives, artists out there, uh, is the, the people with money, they don't know. Mm-hmm. They've been doing this so long. They, they just don't know anymore. They're, they're working their best to create a formula that says, oh, well, if we have whoever, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, it's probably going to do well. If we have Martin Scorsese, it's probably going to do well. And if you have a script by Aaron Sorkin, man. I think that's the winning combination. And that doesn't mean it's a good story. It doesn't mean audiences are going to connect and respond to it. Uh, There's so many other factors you just can't put your finger on. They don't know. Like you said, you have to just, if you're connecting with a story or with a piece of art, 
you have to tell it in the way that you're connecting with it. Just don't create for other people, create for yourself, because that's the stuff that is really going to speak to other people. Even if it feels like no one's going to understand what this thing is about. If it's connecting with you, you already know bare minimum one person is connecting with it. Uh, and, and that's all that you can really hope for uh, is that that little piece of you is going to connect with a little piece of someone else and that'll resonate. That's all you mm-hmm. can do. Yeah, absolutely. And don't quit. That's the other thing. Don't quit. I mean, you know, give Mel Gibson could have quit or, you know, at the first, the first rejection stopped, but you know, you only lose when you quit. That's right. Mm. If you don't quit, you can't lose. Any other uh, final thoughts on uh, Braveheart? Nope. It's fantastic. Timeless. Incredible. I could watch it again. It's the the best long movie ever. And it's fantastic in a whole. I mean, I, the, the, I, okay, I guess there is one thing. Last thing I'll say is that I know I know I, you know, did some deep diving to find out, you know, is this how he really died? And it is did he really yell freedom at the end? And and in doing that research, I, I there are a lot of people out, because he didn't that everybody thinks that he didn't yell freedom. He couldn't have uh, because the death was actually way worse than what's depicted in, in the film. But there are all these people that are like that online who have given a lot of flack to that of of you know you're not just that but his relationship with the princess and stuff you know maybe didn't happen all these things and i just that kind of stuff like makes me upset you know and and people people get upset because they say you're depicting history incorrectly it look it's a it's a film right and there are some things that are you, you can't, nobody can watch a film and think it's a hundred percent exactly the, the case. Right. And if you want to see how he actually died, like all the thing, good luck, go for it. Right. Like you go, go watch faces of death or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, but the point of a film is to give you a feeling. The point of the film is not just give you a feeling, but convey something from specific characters. And so, so if there's not a need to show him being, uh, you know, his, his emasculated, like his testicles being ripped off and then his intestines being burned. So it's the last thing he smells and drags six being miles ripped out. behind a horse. Yeah. For six miles. Like if you don't need to see those things, you don't need to. Right. And then him yelling freedom. Why not? Why the hell not? Like, really? You want him to, okay, let's, let's put the movie in perspective. You see everything that you see. And yet at the end, he doesn't yell freedom. He just dies. He like gurgles and then he dies. Okay. But now think about him yelling freedom and how much more impactful that is. It's this little thing. It doesn't matter if it happened or not. It honestly doesn't matter. It doesn't hurt anything. It doesn't change your perception of, of, of anything except to make it more ingrained that this, this guy was willing to to do everything for his for his freedom of his country for the freedom of his country so i would just i would just say that like <laughs> uh you know i don't know it's old hat i know because it's 1995 but lay off like really it's a story yeah i agree man it's it's the point of art isn't always to represent reality it's to get at the truth of reality. Great point. And those aren't always the exact same thing, right? You can get at the, the truth of a moment through a lie, right? Um, and mm-hmm. it's so much more written 
um, and understood uh, instead of just being by the numbers telling. Because the thing is, we don't know that much about William Wallace in the first place. And so. Yeah, it was in 1200 something, <laughs> yeah. 1278 or something. Yeah, there's no. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of records. But what it did was provided a lot of Scottish pride. Like it renewed tourism in Scotland um, and even brought home a lot of Scots abroad that had moved away, still carrying the family surname. They're like, oh, man, I, I, I want to go home. Um, I've never been there, you know, some of these people. Uh, and so it did a lot for Scotland, even though most of it was filmed in Ireland. And I can I watch something like this and it's so evergreen because I also look at what's going on in China, you know, and, and you're just like, man. This isn't a story that's just in 12, you know, 90, 13, 14, the year of their Lord when the Mm -hmm. Scottish fought Mm -hmm. for independence or whatever. Like this, we are still living in places where not everyone has all the same freedoms and liberties that we do. Uh, And providing something like this is really important. I think my personal opinion has been for a very long time that the best thing America exports is our entertainment. And it's our values that are in entertainment. There's so many other countries where they're like, yeah, we have a right to free speech. And they're like, no, you don't. This is not America. Uh, You don't have a right to all these things that you think you do. Uh, And it sets something in people's minds of, well, why don't we? Uh, This is a fundamental thing that we should have. Um, And it's just, you know, a great way to... to to spark, you know, revolutions or, or whatever. And I'm, but it's, it's really profound what you can do in art to impact people's lives. And I just wish that was our, our country's, uh, you know, impetus was more about exporting our values through art, uh, than through weapons, um, which is, you know, not always, uh, not always been the case to, to say it politely. Yeah. So I adore this film. It's I I need the 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 four hour cut, you know, ASAP. And so agreed. Yeah, let's let's do that. <laughs> agreed, man. Oh my gosh, so good. Yeah, amazing. Um, nice. What are you gonna recommend this week? So I've been watching a lot of uh, um, uh, Tarantino lately, and I'm gonna recommend Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I love that movie, and I feel like. I love that I love it because some people don't at all. And I think it's, I think to my point about like getting history right, I think sometimes it's also great to rewrite it because why the hell not, right? (laughs) Just make it whatever the hell you want it to be and tell whatever story you feel like telling. I think that that's so fun and nobody does it better than Tarantino. Nobody, nobody. Agreed. Nice. I um, I'm still a little on the fence. I'm going to recommend the menu. Um, it's a new film by Luca. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Guadagnino. I haven't seen it yet. Oh <sighs> man, it's uh not Luca. That's Bones and All. The menu anyway. It's uh starring Ray Fiennes and Anya Taylor Joy. Bones and All was the other film I was thinking about recommending. But the menu is it's really fun. I just enjoyed it. It's uh it's weird. Um, if you've seen a preview, you already know it's probably weird and it's exactly the kind of weird you think it's going to be, whatever that means. Yeah, I enjoyed it. If for no other reason than just watching Ray Fiennes and uh, Anya Taylor Joy on screen together, uh, they are freaking dynamite. Yeah, 
I recommend that. It's in theaters right now. Go see it. We get no money for telling you that. <laughs> uh, deserves being pointed out, I guess. Yeah, stay tuned for next week. We're going to be um, taking on a little film called Already Tomorrow in Hong Kong. Yeah, so check that out. I think it's streaming on Amazon Prime uh, currently. Probably streaming somewhere else after that. Uh, I think I originally saw this on Netflix way back in the day. Yeah. So if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, subscribe, drop us a review, leave us a note if there's something you want us to talk about, as well as the kinds of things you want us to talk about. Uh, if there's, I don't know, a topic, we, we don't often talk about like wardrobe and set design, but uh, if anyone is interested in that stuff, I can certainly make a lot of notes and maybe even grab someone uh, who does it professionally to, to have a fun conversation with. So if that interests anyone, um, let us know. And yeah, happy to do that. Uh, if you want to leave a note on this episode, you can do that at thepestpodcast.com slash Braveheart. And our quote of the day is from our own Braveheart, or one of them, George Washington. Uh, Few men have virtue to withstand the highest bidder. Now, I know that there are, the, you know, George Washington wasn't perfect in many ways, uh, you know, definitely a slave owner and all that stuff. But he he was also someone who saw that this country needed to be liberated and was willing to go that extra mile to do that. You know, that's a And that's it's brilliant that he would say something like that. And that's a, it's a great quote for today's episode, because so many times, like you said, so many times they came to William and said, We'll give you castles. We'll give you money. We'll give you everything. Nobility. You know, what is a noble? Was his response. What is a noble? Is it a title? Like, it's just brilliant. Wow. Great quote. So good. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't know if it's lore or fact, but uh, George Washington apparently, you know, could have stayed on as president if he really wanted to. Um, that was kind of a testing moment in America's history of will we actually have peaceful transitions of power? Because that was not common throughout history. Like, uh, I, I think it's really easy to look at our history and only walk away with all the negative stuff. Uh, and rightly so. It's right to look at our history and judge us for slavery, how we treated Native Americans, how we treated immigrants. Um, almost, I mean, virtually everyone, you know, and modern American society was, you know, from a family of immigrants at some point with rare exceptions. Right. Uh, and it's, it's okay to, to look at that and acknowledge it and see the impacts that it's had. Uh, I just think it's also important to look at what George Washington, the founders, Jefferson, these slave owners and otherwise evil people also provided something that the world has never really seen before which was a model for freedom and individual liberty. Uh, and that, I think that's just really incredible. Uh, and then whenever I think about what he probably could have got away with as, you know, quote unquote, the first president, which I think technically isn't accurate, but, you know, is generally the, the way it, it goes. Ah, man, you know, hats off because he, he probably could have taken advantage of his position and to, you know, the way that it matters. Uh, he didn't um, in terms of power and and maintaining and keeping that level of control over the military. He had the military under his thumb um, if he wanted it, as well as, you know, Congress. Like 
it would have been nothing for him to just maintain power. And he didn't. He set an example. And turning down power is so, so hard. Uh, and I love this movie for kind of constantly throwing it in the noble's face of you have all this power and you're doing absolutely nothing good with it. You pieces of shit. They needed to hear that. <laughs> I don't yeah. know who needs to, who, who, what noble people out there need to hear that message. <laughs> <laughs> and it's amazing how like uh, timelessness comes from uh, sacrifice. Mm, wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, in, in George Washington's case, small case as well of deciding it's you know what we are fighting against is the exact thing that i'm going to step down from if that is the case you know because i've heard that as well that yeah. that he could have it, it's not that I, I think he would have had to run again but he probably would have won but he stepped mm. he stepped down is, ah, is the way that i'd heard it okay. but but to 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 make that decision and to have the foresight to make the decision we're fighting against the tyranny of a king. I don't want to be a king. We don't want to be to have kings here and to make that decision, to have the foresight to, to say, I'm thinking of 200 years from now. I don't know where maybe we still have, have yeah. problems, but still, sure. uh, yeah, that's it's brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant. Wow. Nice. Well, this was a lot of fun. I love this film. I'm so glad that we did this. Um, Shout out to Seth for the request. I hope you uh, enjoyed the episode, my man. Yes, and let us know if there's something that we missed or if that we got something wrong or if you had another opinion about it. Uh, we love to hear all of that stuff, for sure. And make sure to join us next week. We're doing Already Tomorrow in Hong Kong. Uh, looking forward to that. And let us know if there's something else that you'd like to see us do uh, or hear us talk about or anything like that. We'd love to hear suggestions. Until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies. Go watch the movies.